Hey, it's Matt Herman. Thank you for joining us. It's better with you here. Today on the podcast, we welcome an award-winning actress, singer, and platinum-selling songwriter who, to the outside world, is known for her work as an original cast member of the Me Nobody Knows and the Los Angeles Roxy production of The Rocky Horror Show, along with several chart hits, as well as motivating a whole generation to exercise. But to the hair universe, she is known as a high school Chrissy and the closing night Sheila. Broadway alumni, Beverly Bremers. Today on Hair, the American Tribal Love Rock Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the American Tribal Love Rock podcast. This is me, Matthew Herman. We have a very, very special, special, I don't know if you can feel the vibrations in the air, but we have a wonderful, wonderful guest with us today. She is the singer of such hits as Don't Say You Don't Remember, We're Free, I'll Make You Music, an angelic voice of positivity and promise. Everyone, please undo your hair and follow it down to your heart. Welcome to the podcast. Beverly Bremers. How are you doing today, Beverly? I am doing great, great. How are you doing, Matt? Well, I'm fantastic. It's oh, such an okay. honor to be able to talk with you. And well, I'm happy to be here. So, as we know, you were in the Broadway cast. You had played various roles in a tribe member, and you went on for Chrissy several times, and then you took some time away, and you came back as Sheila when you returned. But how did you get involved? I know that you had been seen on variety shows like the Ted Mac Amateur Hour and you had some hits and, and radio play and that stuff. But how did you how did you get involved with hair? How did that happen? Well, initially, I, I had a, a recording career. I hadn't really had any hits yet, but I was on RCA. And so I was doing that. But I was also auditioning for shows. And, and I had, you know, I, ha I had aspirations. To, to be on Broadway, but I had what would not be considered a legit voice. I was a rock singer. Mm -hmm. I had not had any success, especially because I looked I, uh, petite blonde. I looked like I should be a legit soprano, which I was very far from that. So I lived out in Westchester County in New York, and one fateful day, I, I had originally planned to aud audition for Hair when it was off-off Broadway, mm -hmm. but I was still in high school, and we thought it was my father, and I thought it was a weird name, and I don't know, I just never did. So cut to this one fateful day where there was a couple that I knew got off the train and said, we just came from seeing a show called Hair, and you are perfect for it. We couldn't help but think of you. So I was like, hmm, maybe I better check it out. So I went and saw the show and I was like, ah, I'm so perfect for the show. I can't believe it. So I actually called an agent who had done one of these, hey, sweetheart, if you ever need any help, giving me his card, call me. So I called him and I said, I don't want to go to a cattle call for this. Mm -hmm. I want to actually be noticed. Can you set up an, an audition? And he's like, oh, no one ever gets in it. And I'm like, well, I think I'm, I'm pretty perfect for it. So do me a favor. So he did. And I, I went in, sang my song, and literally they all said, you're in. 
<laughs> it was a great moment. They actually said, do you want to go to L.A.? you want to stay here? And I'm like, well, I just got out of high school. I, no, I want to be on Broadway. So that was it. And what they always did with hair, which was very unusual. Mm -hmm. I mean, especially in this case, they were, they were missing some cast members. So basically, they taught me one song and said, you're going on tonight doing that song. And I said, well, what am I supposed to do the rest of the show? And they go, oh, people come and go. Don't worry about it. We'll figure out a way to get you on stage. And sure enough, uh, one of the cast members came and he said, here, right on my back. He was on all fours or whatever. I was like, okay. So I just sort of mosey on in and then they go, here, here's the mic. <laughs> I sang black boys, black boys. And then I just sort of hung out for a while and then moseyed on off the stage. <laughs> And so then the next day, they came in, taught me, you know, I don't remember, Aquarius or whatever. And so each day I would learn a little bit more. And I also did rehearse with the cast and we did theater games, mm -hmm. which I actually had never done before. And the one I remember most is a, is a game where cast got in a circle around me and they blindfolded me and they said, okay, run and we'll catch you. And I didn't know anybody. And I was like, what? They go, this is a trust exercise. And when you do this show, you have to trust the cast members, which I did learn very quickly after that. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, I guess if I fall off the stage or whatever. <laughs> and of course they caught me and that started building the bond. Mm -hmm. And anybody who has ever seen the show knows there are elements of danger leaping into off a platform into someone's arms, which Berger had to do, and he had to trust that we would catch him, uh, and things like that, and dangerous things, tar, feathers, water, dry ice, swinging on ropes. I mean, th there was a lot of stuff. So you had to trust that the other members of the cast would would be there to help you in whatever way you needed. And then there was an element of improvisation, mainly in the second act, where you also, even though the, the script was set and the music was set and the staging was set, there were places for improvisation. And of course, the biggest shock to me, having never been, I'd been in community theater. That was the extent of my, of my professional experience, was the day I looked over and there's this silver Indian sitting in the middle of the stage. And I'm, I said to somebody, Who's that? And what's that all about? And they go, oh, that's Michael Butler, the producer. He likes to show up and paint himself silver. And he just, you know, sits there and we just dance around him or whatever. Pay no attention. <laughs> that's what I did. And um, that's pretty much how I met Michael Butler. <laughs> you know, I talked with him later, but, but that was my introduction. And what I think what the most wonderful thing about the show besides what the show uh mm -hmm. the message of the show was as an actor and performer it taught me to be unafraid don't worry about if something goes wrong because there were always things that went wrong accidents and and people not showing up on stage when they should and all kinds of crazy things and you learned you just go with it mm -hmm. and the show must go on and it's okay because the audience will accept it and love it. And that was the most valuable lesson that I learned that really this, 
any show since then. If the scenery falls down or whatever, okay, deal with it. So I, I always said that was uh, an amazing acting training in addition to the message of the show. Mm -hmm. And the message of the show, the show was unique in so many ways at that time, from the title to the style of the music, the fact that we went out in the audience, that there was no curtain, that it was a raked stage, that you could ad lib, the band was on stage with us. Those elements alone made it stand out. And so a lot of people were shocked mm -hmm. and then later very accepting. And one of the big differences for me was that when I was cast in the show, it had been running for a while and the, most people hadn't heard of it yet because Michael Butler believed in the show so much and Clive Barnes, the big critic mm -hmm. at the time, loved it. So the show kept going and it went from some people knowing it, some people not, to the song, Aquarius, the medley's Aquarius Let the Sunshine In, being released by the Fifth Dimension, to suddenly the, the show was standing room only yeah. from then on. And it was huge. And then I left to do another show, which we were talking about, The Me Nobody Knows. And then I came back. They actually, the casting director saw me in the show and didn't read the program. <laughs> and said, uh, uh, you're perfect for this show. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I had never gotten a chance to play Sheila. They always thought I was too young. And of course, I felt like I was perfect for it. So eh, they dangled the carrot and I came back. And the, the biggest difference I noticed in the audience was that the first time I was in it, there were people that were kind of either scared or in mm -hmm. awe or you know, they, they didn't know what to think. By the time I came back, everybody knew the music. Everybody was used to guys with long hair. I mean, grandmas would be like, oh, he looks like my grandson. Whereas the first time, it was like, look at the freaks. Mm -hmm. So it, it, what was interesting, that hair came from this kind of anti-establishment kind of show, breaking all kinds of rules, doing new innovations, to becoming kind of, the norm, oh yeah, those are young people, yeah, we know them. And I was in the show up to the last performance, oh, wow. which was a trip in itself. I could only I could only imagine. One thing that I know with hair as opposed to some of the other shows is like, you'll do a production of Oklahoma or something else and that run is done. But I've seen the bonds created by the cast go year after year and, it, and yeah. it's, it's oh, well, doing you, that. Oh, you become a family. Yes. Um, I'm friends with people that I didn't even do the show with. <laughs> I, I knew them from other shows, uh, like Ted Neely, who was in Superstar. He was in the show, but not when I was, but we know each other and, you know, we stay in touch. It does carry over. And mm -hmm. uh, what was really fun about the last performance of Hair, I really wish they could have videoed it because they invited everybody who had ever been in the show to come on stage and participate in the group numbers. So we started the show with, I don't know, maybe 35, 40 people on this tiny rake yeah. stage. By the end of the show, by the time I started singing Flesh Failures, crying, of course, mm -hmm. there must have been 50, 60 people on stage singing Let the Sunshine In. And it was the most amazing, electrifying feeling that you would ever get because everybody, this was this huge family of people 
and no matter and even people who had been in other companies if they were in town yeah come on up and it was fantastic very it's a very difficult feeling to describe to anybody unless you were there mm-hmm. because because of the vibes you know that you felt but it was great and it was a wonderful bond and uh, so many of us have seen each other from time to time I've stayed in touch with Michael I'm not I'm not in LA anymore but when we did you know a bunch of us would would cook and we'd go have dinner with him and and he was very supportive he came to uh, one of the shows I was in in LA and and uh, you know so he I think also thinks of everyone as a family um, oh, I've been much. able to because of my records perform with a couple of my old cronies that I had been in hair with which is really fun too, you know. So it's a great experience, you know. And I think anybody that you've interviewed will say the same thing. Oh, and that's been that's been the general consist consistent as as with any family. There's ups and downs, but overall, it's it's that bond that brings it together and that that peace and love because the message of the show is so in, is so important. And as you said, with it's such an interesting to see the shift in audience and how people were very concerned because one thing, I mean, I wasn't around. Um, back then but you hear you know i remember like in the mid 90s when the grunge music came in and everybody started wearing their hair long and they're like oh it's like hippies all over again but it was a real big men with long hair was a real big issue and people were very concerned about it well well, you know you're too young to remember but uh you heard of the beatles i've I've heard i've heard yeah yes okay So the, now this is 1964 and the Beatles, they just had bangs and people were all up in arms. Oh, that's so shocking. And their hair was like covering the tops of their ears. So it actually started in the mid sixties. So by the time hair opened uh, 67 off Broadway, 68 on Broadway, mm-hmm. it was a movement that had been happening. And of course, long hair was what represented that whole, you know, peace, love, flowers, sex, drugs, rock and roll, that entire era, which kind of started in the mid 60s with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and some of these uh, groups, mainly from Britain, but that was the thing. And it's hard for us to believe now, like what? The Beatles haircut was a shock, it was. And then so by the time hair came with this really long hair, you know, people are always, afraid or feel threatened by something that's completely different and of Mm -hmm. course the show drew upon that as well you know there are things in the show that purposely tried to shock and sometimes offend Mm -hmm. people just kind of as a wake-up call you know and really that's what being young is all about this is why music changes so drastically the teenagers desperately need music that their parents hate so that they have something that they can embrace themselves there's nothing worse to a teenager than have mom and dad like their music oh yeah (laughs) it blows the whole thing i work with a with a group of students and they're like oh as soon as they say it it's no cool it's not cool anymore and it's right and and that's just the way it is teenagers need to rebel Mm -hmm. so hair was perfect for that but it did end up embracing well it ended up everybody loved the show Mm -hmm. i really don't I don't even remember anybody ever saying that they didn't like it. You know, maybe they didn't like one song or one number or whatever. But in general, 
it encompassed everybody by the time they were through. And of course, part of it was also Galt McDermott's amazing music, you know, and Jim and Jerry wrote some awesome lyrics. And, you know, I mean, there was so much to it. Uh, Tama Horgan's direction, Julie Arnold's choreography, you know, everything. And of course, the promotion, mm-hmm. the whole PR team, just every, everybody involved. But I would say mainly Michael Butler. Mm-hmm. He believed in this show and still does mm-hmm. so strongly that he uses every tool that he has in his toolbox to make it happen. And so that's, it's a great example of somebody who really, really, really believes in a project and, and gets it done, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, another th- feature about the show that people always mention is that you're invited on stage at the end of the show to meet the cast, dance, and whatever. And that was also unusual. Other shows, of course, have done it since. But that was always a great feature, too, because people, you know, could get get up close to, you know, their favorite actor or actors. And then we had our groupies. There was one guy, and he, you know, became an actor and then a film director. He came every Saturday. I mean, there he was in the front row. He could afford it, obviously. Mm -hmm. And he, to this day, because I'm still in touch with him, and he, to this day he can, he can reel off the the lyrics to Electric Blues, for instance, a song I did. It's like I don't know the lyrics. He's <laughs> like, oh yeah, you know. So it had meaning to uh, audience members to such a degree. He said it was a life changing experience for him, and there's many, many people out there that will say the same thing. It's going to mean different things to different people as well as now we're in a, you know, 50 years later, mm-hmm. seeing the show now is more of a period piece, except there are elements to it that mm-hmm. still apply today and always will. But yeah. it, it's interesting, of course, what different directors do with the show and the actors but hopefully they all do their research so they understand the era people i think the, the hardest thing for young people today to understand is the concept of the draft mm-hmm. which was the cornerstone plot of the show yeah you know, a lot of people forget that but it was about somebody who was about to get drafted and didn't want didn't want to go and uh and his you know his dilemma and, you know, we don't have the draft anymore. People don't realize that it was a huge dark cloud hanging over every young man's life. Was where, where, what's my number and am I going to have to go and maybe die? Yeah. You know? So. Well, and it was so, and it was so active because it would, they would show scenes from the war on the evening news and, and it was very present, you know, it was prevalent in society and, and. Right. There was, it, you know, protests and the forcing of it. I mean, if someone wants to to join and, and do what they can, because sometimes people don't have other, you know, soldiers don't have, or people that join the army or the armed forces, they, they're trying to better themselves. But in the situation, it's kind of no. a forced and it, it really, it's a really point of tension. Right. And at the time, the show also was very political mm-hmm. in that there were people who supported the war in Vietnam and people who didn't. And mm-hmm. that, was, that was a big divide in the country. And so, of course, Hare was anti-war. It also depicted the horror of war. You know, the, the scene, uh, what a piece of work is, is man. 
and that whole sequence in there of the war was always very poignant because, you know, most of us, if we haven't been to, to into any kind of uh, military situation, we don't know. We yeah. just know what we've seen in movies. And of course, since then, there have been quite a few very graphic movies that have depicted it. But uh, to see that on stage was was also very shocking to a lot of people, um, and sometimes in a good way. And uh, I think being aware, or as they say now, being woke, mm-hmm. is a good thing, no matter what it is, rather than burying your head in the sand. And so, you know, you could, you could talk to zillions of people, and whether they were in the show or not, or even if they saw the show or not, and talk about that, period of time, the late 60s and the early 70s, and, you know, different people will find pros and cons mm-hmm. to all of it. But that show pretty much encompassed a good lot of it. Very much, and just the revolutionary of it, and to reflect, I know I know Michael, how he got involved was Bobby Kennedy had asked him because Kerner was going on the Civil Rights Commission, and he had asked because, you know, Bobby and um, Michael was really good friends with with JFK. Bobby had asked him to to go with Kerner. And Michael was also running for, I think it was the Senate of Illinois. And that's how he originally got involved, because he wanted to use the show as his platform to campaign. And then Kerner said, well, you know, you'll make a better difference in the world by producing this show than you could ever do in politics because of all the, the red tape and bureaucracy and all that stuff going that's in. Right. And so joining the cast so young and with you know, some of the content that's in there, was there any concern or was there any, did it, you know, was any family members nervous about you joining or hanging out with all these hippies or, cause you said you were just out of high school, right? Yeah. No, my father pretty much came and saw the show about once a week. <laughs> and his, his favorite part was getting up on stage at the end. Um, no, it's funny because people always think of the nude scene. Mm-hmm. It was never even mentioned to me until we were signing contracts. Mm. And then there was just a little writer saying it was an optional thing. If you felt like doing it, you would do it. And so I was like, oh, okay. And I didn't do it until my last show the first time. And then I realized how difficult it was to get all your clothes off under this tarp and then open this slot with Velcro and stand up. And so I failed miserably. By the time I stood up, the lights went out and I had to run off the stage. It was, I was a failure in that. And I'd seen everybody do it and I I didn't realize how difficult it was. (laughs) But um, it it was not a big deal. After I joined the cast, they did start to pay the cast a little extra for doing Mm -hmm. it because it was a lot of trouble. Yeah. <laughs> so they, you know, they ended up adding that the same way as there was uh, extra hazard pay for mm-hmm. the show, because one of the downsides of the show was that there were so many different ways to get hurt. Mm-hmm. And it happened. And usually during the show, and that's what I mean about the show must go on. I literally seen people jump into position and finish a song because the person singing it was injured and had to be carried off or whatever. And it happened countless times. And most of the time, the audience didn't even realize what was going on because everybody did it so smoothly and calmly. 
And so that's what I tell everyone, you know, when you're performing, if stuff goes wrong, which invariably it will, just go with it and act like nothing's wrong. And most yeah. of the time they won't even know. The audience is not sitting there with a the, with the script. They're not they're not going back. The only reason they know something is if you telegraph it, you know, if right. you make the face or Yeah. Well, um, even if you even if it's obvious, if you don't look upset, they don't care. Yeah. I mean, you could be, oh gee, that went wrong. Oh well, let's move on. I mean, you could literally step out of character, acknowledge it, as long as you're not frightened mm -hmm. and nervous. They'll go with it because remember that the reason people go to see a show or hear a concert or whatever is to enjoy themselves. So mm -hmm. the last thing they want is to be upset. So if the actor is upset, of course, they're going to be upset. So you just if you're calm about it, you can get away with anything. <laughs> right. Just play it cool. Just play it cool. That's um, right. What would you hope that a younger generation or someone that has never seen it or is familiar with it? What would you hope they would take away from it? I think the big takeaway is peace, love, and happiness. Because even though there was a lot of problems and strife and, and sadness that was depicted, it, and it happens in every generation and every mm -hmm. decade. I think the overall message, which was one of the reasons why I, I wanted to be in the show, is that love will, will get us through. Mm -hmm. and and trust among people as i say those trust exercises when i joined the cast were very very important and of course businesses now do those all the time they have retreats and trust exercises you know it's a theater game that a lot of actors were mm -hmm. raised with and tom horgan just decided that was a good idea there which it definitely was and so that was my main message overall is that you you just love one another and if you have to forgive, you forgive, you know, and that's it. You did take a brief hiatus from the show and you did another show, which was the Me Nobody Knows, mm -hmm. which gave voice to the sentiments of the inner city American youth. And yes. that was kind of same in line. And it was another rock and roll kind of thing. How did, how did that, how did that come about? Was it, was it an opportunity? I know you had previously mentioned that you wanted to do the show and, and how did you get involved into that one? Well, I, I don't know where I saw the, the audition notice, but I did. And it said it was um, kids, high school and younger in the ghetto. They called it the ghetto back then. And they said it was something that was going to be developed from a book that this teacher had compiled. And what he did was he had the kids in the inner city just write about what they felt. He said, don't worry about grammar. Don't, don't worry about any conventions of, of the English language. Just say what you feel. And the, the writings varied from, you know, super positive to very dark. Mm -hmm. And he compiled it into this book. And so I read that. So they said, we're developing this show from the book. So I thought it sounded fabulous. However, it was mainly black and Puerto Rican as you know, actors were there looking for, and I'm like super wasp. So I'm, I'm like, yeah, but I, this show, it sounds really important. Mm -hmm. So I, I auditioned and they loved my singing. And so they said, here, go get the book 
and come back and do um, a little whatever you choose, you know, whatever you choose to do, you know, and then sing for the producers and the director and everybody. So I said, great. And they said, but dress down. <laughs> so, yeah, okay. So, you know, I came in with my jeans and a sloppy top, whatever. They, there was like the typical table of people and I sang and they all went, thank you. And I started to leave and I did something that you're never supposed to do as an actor, but I figured, what the heck? I turned around, I said, excuse me, did I do something wrong? And they're like, what do you mean? I said, well, you're dismissing me and I had prepared a piece from this book and uh, I paid $3 for it, but that's not the point. I, you know, I worked on it and whatever, and, and now you're not asking me to read, so I was just wondering if I did something wrong. And they went, oh, no, it's because you're blonde. So I said, oh. I said, well, it's my understanding that you're portraying kind of a, a universal urban area, not necessarily all, all of color. So, you know, they're blondes in the ghetto, right? Mm -hmm. And I'll balance off your, your color scheme, you know, and they all laughed. <laughs> and I said, but okay, I just wanted to know. You know, I enjoyed the book, fine. And they go, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> While you're here, go ahead and read, which I did. They called me back again. They said, we're getting a whole bunch of kids together, see how everybody fits together. We're gonna to teach you a song, whatever. And they, there again, they said, dress down. So I didn't wash my hair. I mean, I got as grungy as I could, which I already knew how to do. So, <laughs> from hair. So I went and we learned a song, had a wonderful experience singing. And then they asked me to sit down in the house and there was another little girl, a little 12-year-old girl, and she and I sat and watched the whole rest of it. And we, we said to each other at the end, oh, so nice to meet you, too bad we didn't get in the show. And as it turned out, they had already decided on both of us early on. <laughs> and they were just seeing all the others. So, you know, there were, the cast was amazing, and we developed the show as we went. They, we used to use, uh, during the rehearsal period, we used our own names. And at one point, the guy who was playing uh, what who later became Clorox, um, he felt uncomfortable with some of the black power stuff. It wasn't really in his personal uh, wheelhouse. And so the director said, okay, everybody, go home and choose a name. Give yourself a character name. And so most of us chose whatever pseudonym the people in the, the kids in the book used. So we came back and did that. So little Irene Cara, who was 11 at the time, she took on uh, Lily May was one of the little characters. Or, and, uh, you know, we each picked characters. And the guy who played the Black Power guy took the pseudonym Clorox. And we all had names. And then our characters really came alive. And the show was an amazing show to do. We got all positive reviews, not mm -hmm. a single negative review in it. School groups would come, kids who'd never been to a show before. And that happened with hair also. Kids had that live theater experience. So I absolutely loved doing the show. I was in the original cast. We were off Broadway, then we went to Broadway and whatever. And it, it ran its course. Unfortunately, the producer didn't promote it the way it really should have, but there were some companies. Donna Summer actually played my part in Germany, mm -hmm. and Paul Jabara <laughs> again appeared. He was in the original cast of Hair, and he did Hair in Germany with Donna Summer. Mm -hmm. 
And eventually, that's how he got her to record Last Dance, because he was a very prolific songwriter as well as actor. You know, everybody has great stories about Paul Jabara, that's for sure. But I was lucky enough to work with him in Hair, and then later in Los Angeles, I did the Rocky Horror Show with him. Another crazy rock music. Well, that's what I was going to say. You have, well, there's you definitely have... a pattern. I would say. <laughs> yes, and then most recently, I did a show called Menopause the Musical. Mm-hmm. And of course, the role I played was the hippie. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's what I do, I guess. <laughs> Our listeners may or may not know Richard O'Brien was in the replacement cast in, in London, and that's where he met Tim Curry, and Meatloaf was over there and brought it all. And then you took you know it's it's so interesting where it's almost hair is almost the center of the universe you know where it's so many so many pieces coming together after um those runs you've had quite the recording career as a as a songwriter and especially with with the music of hair being such a radio hit almost seems you know right for you to to go yeah. in and well it was it was a simultaneous thing i recorded don't say i don't remember while i was in the me nobody knows and it was kind of a weird record. It was on the charts for nine months, which is a crazy story unto itself. But so, uh, so I did that while I was doing Broadway. So I did the Me Nobody Knows. Then I went back into Hair, and so I never toured, mm-hmm. which was eh, a mistake, and from a recording uh, standpoint. But I was loving my doing the shows so much. I didn't want to leave, and actually, they had to coerce me into going to LA to do American Bandstand because I didn't want to, I didn't want to miss a show, but I finally did. And so that whole period of time, I had so much going on. It was, mm-hmm. it was crazy and, and uh, crazy and wonderful all at the same time. So are there any projects that you're working on now? Yes, I do teach. I teach singing, I teach voiceovers, songwriting and all that because uh, besides my theater and my Recording career, I'm also a songwriter. I wrote a song for Disney called Mouser Size. Mm-hmm. So if anybody, it was an exercise song uh, for Disney, and that actually went platinum. So I, that's my big, my big songwriting claim to fame. But I've also written five musicals that have been produced in L.A. and in San Diego. So I, I do love the theater that's always my love but i do also love recording so i've got cds out and i do concerts from time to time you know various oldies concerts mainly but i am active i i still do some some acting tv acting and that kind of thing so basically i have a website my main website is beverlybremers.com mm-hmm. so that's easy to find basically you can just google my name and i'm going to pop up in various places because I also do voiceovers. So, you know, you'll hear me uh, either in a commercial or a cartoon or a narration. I do all that crazy stuff, you know, because mm-hmm. it's all acting. Yeah. All of it is acting. So I just, you know, I go along. So I have voicersize.net, which is my teaching site. And then I have my, my regular Beverly Bremers, which, you know, is connected to everything. You know how it is with social media. Oh, so, yeah. you know, and we'll make I'm sure on. to have that in the show notes so that people can I'm click and find I'm it easy. Think, yeah, uh, it's Twitter, LinkedIn, <laughs> uh, Instagram, Facebook, 
all, all that. that stuff. Have you gotten on TikTok yet? I watch it sometimes, <laughs> but I haven't actually made that that jump yet. I'm not mm. sure if I'm going to or not. I don't know if I'm TikTok material because <laughs> I don't have those dance moves down or whatever, you know, and my cat's not very cooperative, so. Right, that's always <laughs> <laughs> the case. TikTok. And besides, if people like me start doing it, then the kids will have to go somewhere else because right, right, it comes back in and be like, oh, the, the old fogies. Nobody wants the old fogies messing with their stuff. So, <laughs> uh, well, we're almost we're almost out of time for today. But one thing that I ask all the all the people that have come on the podcast. Considering hair was very pivotal in a protest. And a lot of times when you see protests, you see the signs and with have the messages. And so if you were having all of your knowledge and experiences and, and everything all culminating, if you can have like one sentence or if you had a sign and it doesn't have to be a protest, it can be a, a message of positivity or whatever. But what would your sign, if you were to stand out and, and lift your sign, what would your sign say? Listen and love. Perfect. That's what we need to do. Well, so many people don't listen. Yeah, you know, they hear, they, but they don't hear, listen. But they don't listen. And that's part of the problem, I think, that we've had throughout history is, mm -hmm. you know, you, no one is absorbing, digesting, pondering, you know, messages that are there. They just make a, a, a quick judgment. And mm -hmm. that's the end of it. Just kind of like uh, judging a book by its cover, you know, that exactly. expression. You know, and uh, that's always a mistake. And with love, it's it's giving it, accepting. We may not yeah. see eye to eye on things, but we can acknowledge each other as an individual and we have yeah. our own personal rights. And, and that's yeah. what allows everything. So freedom, if everything was all homogenous and clean cut and, you know, this is this and this is this, it gets boring. So it adds that little variety in that. Right, that but love some people are afraid. Some people are afraid of that boredom, but I have several close friends who are politically opposite to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, really. And I just avoid the subject. <laughs> I just, let's not talk about that, you know, because I enjoy their company mm -hmm. for everything else. But, you know, I don't, I, unfortunately, you can't get into healthy debates on two subjects, religion and politics, yeah. which just about everybody knows. And every time, you try to do it, it usually gets you in trouble because people just don't know, have open minds about those things. Mm -hmm. So that's why I say, if you could listen, you know, be open, listen, and then love someone in spite of, of what they feel, they're, they have a reason and you wanna understand that, you know, so. And it makes the world a, a little bit smaller and a little more friendlier, like the musical hair has brought all these people exactly. together and that stuff you as well. You tied that together beautifully. I try, I try. <laughs> well, Beverly, thank you, thank you so much. We're out of time for today, but I just wanna thank everybody for tuning in and thank you so much for, for lending your voice to this and for all of your catalog of work and all that you've done and all that you continue to do. Thank I you. thank you and I know that it means a lot to a lot of people and, and People will listen and, and love you just as much as, as they yeah. can today. Well, they I will hope tomorrow. they will. <laughs> I hope they will. I have a bunch of CDs that um, and downloads, of course, nowadays that, you know, hopefully encompass that whole feeling because I'm a baby boomer. I mean, that's I'm from the 60s and 70s. That's what my sensibility is. So hopefully there'll be other people that will feel that way too. Listening to some of your other your other songs, there is such an honesty and such a 
just an emotion. It's it's the quintessential voice of the era. And so I really appreciate having that time to speak with you today and everybody else. So thank you so much. Thank you and good luck to you. Thank you. And uh, you know, stay in touch. Oh, most definitely, most definitely. We'll have to have an, we'll have to have you back again as a guest because I feel that we just scratched the surface of all this. I would love it. Beverly Bremers is an award-winning actress best known for her work in the Broadway productions of The Me Nobody Knows and Hair, as well as the Los Angeles productions of The Rocky Horror Show and Menopause the Musical. As a singer, she's best known for the million-selling records Don't Say You Don't Remember and We're Free. As a songwriter, she received a platinum record for writing the song Mouser Size, which became the theme for the long-running Disney program. She continues to develop musicals, as well as individuals' talents through her program, Voicer Size, which can be found in the show notes. Hair, the American Tribal Love Rock podcast, is a production of The Hair Company. Michael Butler, Matthew Herman, Conwell Worthington, John and Jeannie Cutler, with assistance from Nina Macklin-Dayton in The Hair Archive. A very, very special thank you goes to James Rado, Jerome Ragney, and Galt McDermott, whose music was featured in this episode. If you have a story you'd like to share with us, we can be reached by email at podcast at hair-live.com. That's podcast at H-A-I-R hyphen L-I-V-E dot com. We hope you have a wonderful week. And remember, be free, be whoever you are, do whatever you do, just so long as you don't hurt anyone. And remember, I am your friend.